listening to CJSW 90.0 FM in Calgary. So what does all this have to do with Dr. Kent? It is part and parcel of where we stand this day when we talk about claiming the dream. The dream was a dream of economic justice. The dream was a dream of civil rights and economic justice, and we can't leave that economic justice piece out of it. Dr. King said, the movement must address itself to the question of restructuring the whole of American society. There are 40 million poor people here, that was in 1968, about the same number now. And one day we must ask the question, why? That's Julianne Malveaux, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamian. This edition of AR features Julianne Malveaux, Economic Justice, Dr. King's Legacy. The conventional media image of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. has him frozen in time at the Lincoln Memorial on August 28, 1963, giving his inspirational I Have a Dream speech. Little attention is paid to King's remarkable political and social evolution in the last five years of his life. He became a trenchant critic of the Vietnam War. In his classic sermon at the Riverside Church in New York, he denounced the war and the giant triplets of racism, materialism, and militarism. King increasingly saw the link between economic justice and racial equality and insisted that one was impossible without the other. His final days were spent in Memphis, where he was actively supporting a strike by black sanitation workers, and he was planning to launch a Poor People's March on Washington, D.C. An assassin's bullet ended Dr. King's life on April 4, 1968. Our guest today is Julianne Malveaux. She's an economist and political commentator, her articles appear in leading newspapers and magazines, and she has taught and lectured at major colleges and universities. She's the author of Sex, Lies, and Stereotypes, and Surviving and Thriving. This archival program was recorded in Denver in 1994. It is as relevant today as it was then. If anything, the economic numbers are worse. And now, Julianne Malveaux. I'm worried about Dr. King's birthday for a number of reasons. I was in Washington, D.C. about two weeks ago, laying in my bed doing my favorite pastime reading, when I came across a Dr. King's day, actually the ad said, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. birthday first sale. Okay? <laughs> I was reading the Washington Post, minding my business in a relatively relaxed position. I had not taken any mind-altering substances and I have not gotten to the age where my vision has begun to blur. So I looked at this and I said, there's a problem here. It said, come to the Mayflower Hotel on January the 16th and get 50% off if you buy a pho. I said, um, there is something wrong with this picture. Dr. King's birthday has been commercially hijacked by a number of people. You see a number of people with ads in the paper, we share the dream by cores. Right? <laughs> okay. The same company that we were picketing, you know, 10 years ago, give me a break. Or we share the dream, uh, furniture is 50% off at Levitt's. Um, you share the dream that you'll make more profits. We have to be very wary of this commercial hijacking, and at the same time, it, it, it perhaps does mean that Dr. King has become uniquely American. After all, we have a 
Abraham Lincoln's birthday, President's Day sales. We Veterans Day, we don't think about the veterans, but how many dollars off. We've located all our holidays on Monday so we can have a long time to party. Uh, where is the Christ or the Christian in Christmas? This is another commercial, if you will, or retail holiday. So I don't know whether to be bothered or worried, but that first sale really worried me. So I called the people. See, I have a problem. I'm one of these people who can't mind her own business, even when it's advisable. So the phone number was there. I decided that I should be the person to educate them. I called the people. I said, do you know what Dr. King's birthday stood for? The man said, look, lady, I'm a minority entrepreneur. I'm trying to make it. I said, well, he said, then I told him my name and I tried to impress him. I said, and I'm an economist and I just think, he said, oh, you've written about minority entrepreneurship. Well, do you know how difficult it is? I said, well, can't you sell the furs off on another day? He said, what are you, one of those animal rights kooks? <laughs> and I had to explain to him that, no, I'm not an animal rights kook. Actually, I think a chicken has but one right, and that is to jump into a pan of uh, boiling fat and become fried chicken. And, uh, but I said, that's not the point. The point is to combine the commercialism with Dr. King's birthday as a problem. But the man with the first sale was not the only person that's taken Dr. King's birthday out of context. The people who talk about having a dream in the context simply of a dream do little to honor King. Dr. King did not die dreaming. You know, he was not in the bed sleep when he died. We're not celebrating the fact that he was able to have, quote, dreams. See, a dream is like someone says, I dreamed I was thin, then they eat a sandwich and watch Jenny uh, Jones. So, you know, Dr. King died in action. He was an activist. The unique contribution that he made to our society is that he paired his dreams with action. So you hear people talking about keeping the dream alive who discriminate. People who talking about having a dream who don't pay Social Security taxes for their child care workers. People going to Howard University and talking about what King would say if he were here about the dream. And you know which people I talk about. Our president, you've been dreaming so long. So it seems to me that we have to take the dream and, maybe, and put it in a very active context and talk about a dream as something dynamic and not something passive and not something you do when you close your eyes, but something that you actively do when you live. But we sing and we talk about we shall overcome and we have indefinitely postponed the notion of overcoming. If you look at one of those Philofax things, as soon as you decide that the date is X, then you begin to talk about this chart or the flow chart where the process comes out and what you have to do to get to X. If it's your thesis, you talk about how many pages you have to write in order to get the 200 pages. You know you have to write 10 a day. You know if you're slow, you might write five a day. And you know that if you write one a day, you will never get your degree. <laughs> but you know that the, the, the job must be divided into manageable tasks. And then you must say, we do this this much this time, and this much this much this time. And we have not done that in this era, as we've talked about overcoming. We have not said, well, we will implement the Civil Rights Act in this state. We will begin to do some things with small business participation. We haven't begun to define the task. We all know the problem, but we haven't defined the task. And we can bite off this much and chew it this time, this month, this year. I would not be especially happy if I was told the date I was to file a fax was, uh, you know, April 15, 2030. I would be very chagrined by that. On the other hand, if it was bitten off into doable tasks and I saw it coming at 2030, I could say, well, we have made progress and measured it. 
And I know this is a cynical way of looking at things, and even Dr. King suggested that there was not a straight path to progress, that all too often we went circularly, and we didn't know as we moved circularly whether we were getting closer to our goal or not. But what I suggest is that in this country at this moment, when W.E.B. Du Bois said 100 years ago, the problem of the 20th century will be the problem of the color line, that somehow 100 years later, we haven't figured out how to deal with that. And that we really run the risk of taking 20th century baggage into the 21st century and limiting our ability to compete internationally because we're burdened with internal problems. I would suggest if we look at what W.B. Du Bois said and what the Soviet, and lots of people, lots of young people, someone told me, oh, I remember when the civil rights movement started, it was in 1964. And I, this, this was a very young person. First of all, they weren't there in 1964. You know, I mean, I was nine, but you know, they weren't there. So they said they remembered when it started. I said, but it didn't start in 1964. It started sometime in 1864 as we began the process of A, freeing slaves, B, wondering whether or not there would be a Freedmen's Bureau. There was political activity around that. And recall that the opportunity to integrate people into our economy was denied. We move on and look at the activity around um, Plessy versus Ferguson. We look at the NAACP's ascendancy. And that organization truly was founded by blacks and whites together. And they truly did have a more dynamic discussion than we are having today about how African American and white people work together. Whether or not we could patronize each other, whether or not a white woman could take orders from an African-American man. The other thing that worries me about Dr. King's birthday as I look at the number of protests that they've been even about the birthday celebration is the extent to which the luster has often fallen from the life of Dr. King. In the last 10 years, we've learned that Dr. King perhaps did not write his whole PhD dissertation himself. How many people care about that? But you know, that was a big scandal that made headlines and uh, people talked about it quite a bit. We have learned that Dr. King might not have been as quote, faithful to his marriage vows as he might have been. Um, and how many people care about that? But these things make headlines. And I remember when um, we were fighting for the birthday that Jesse Helms entered into the congressional record, a very long discussion calling King a communist and talking about his personal life. And what concerns me about that is that we have a need to see Dr. King as bigger than life, when he, in fact, he was all of our life. And if we see him as bigger than life, then we see the issue of struggle as bigger than life. Then we think you have to be perfect in order to struggle. Then you think you have to have, like, filed all the Ten Commandments and filed your income tax on time in order to have made a difference. And this is not the case. I think that what we learn, if we look at Dr. King's imperfections, is something that he said about service. He said everybody is great because everybody can serve. You don't have to have a PhD to serve. You don't have to know the theory of thermonuclear dynamics to serve. All you have to have is a heart full of grace and a soul full of love. So when we talk, when we talk about this process of overcoming, and when we say, when we sing, we shall overcome, we should rededicate ourselves to overcome and to think about what King did for this country, not just African-American people, but for every person who lives and breathes and lives an improved life because of the struggle. Every movement for rights in this country is an offshoot of the civil rights movement, the women's movement, the movement for gay and lesbian rights, 
Every movement is an offshoot of that. We don't mind it. We'll share Dr. King. But let's be clear. Dr. King is an American hero. He worked very hard. He set a standard for struggle. And each of us can meet that standard. It wasn't about the simple fact that Rosa Parks saying, I'm not going to go to the back of the bus. It was about the people who then supported her with what? An economic boycott. And I think it's important to think about that, too, because people in hijacking Dr. King like to think about him as this nonviolent, swaying and singing person who had a dream. How many of you know that Dr. King said, if the world is two-thirds water, why should we pay water bills? In other words, Dr. King was interested in issues of economic distribution. And ultimately, when we talk about the civil rights struggle, and ultimately, when we talk about all the struggles for rights, we also have to talk about economic distribution. And we're uncomfortable with that, because then we start hitting people where they live. We start saying, if you have that much, this perhaps takes from someone else. We start raising the question, how many cars do you need? Does one person need? How much income must one person have? We start wondering how we make economic policy in this country. Two weeks ago, the American Economics Association met in Boston. Martin Feldstein, one of the key economists in this country, said the unemployment rate is getting to be too low. If it goes too much lower, interest rates will go higher and we will have a problem. And you know, the street response is, yo, Marty, you got a job. But uh, I don't know that we have to break it to the street response. The scholar's response is there are 8.2 million unemployed people in this country, 6 million more working part-time, half of whom want full-time jobs, 3 million more moonlighting, about 20 million people in minimal economic distress and others that we are not counting, how dare anybody say the unemployment rate is too low? The interest rate in 1993 was 2.7%. I could live with 4% interest rates, 4% inflation. I could live with it easily if it meant 5% unemployment, if it meant a couple more million people went back to work. And this is what we have to look at. Dr. King addressed those issues, but we don't want to deal with those issues he addressed. We prefer to remember him as someone who simply talked about nonviolence, someone who simply talked about dreaming, someone who simply talked about overcoming. He saw these issues as connected. Denver, like every other city in our nation, has been plagued by enormous violence. The drive-by shootings you probably never thought you'd see in the Rocky Mountains, that was just an L.A. thing. It only happened on Boys in the Hood, right? But some people in Denver saw Boys in the Hood, and they decided they could do that too, okay? Somebody went and watched Michael Douglas in Falling Down, and they decided they could do that too. People go and shoot up a Chuck E. Cheese. Why? Because they're mad? Because they're angry? Excuse me? Children are hit. Bullets ricochet, and children are hit. A 12-year-old girl is abducted in the Bay Area, abducted and disappears by somebody who should not have been let out of jail. And we all beat ourselves on the breast and say, awful, awful, awful. Or then we support people who are tough on crime. George Allen in um, Virginia won his election by saying, no more parole. Rudy Giuliani, when the police go beat folk up at a Muslim temple, say, well, the police are always right. Excuse me. $22 billion crime bill at a time when we cannot afford employment and training legislation. But of course, we've all beat ourselves on the breast and said this crime is equal awful, this violence is awful, without looking at the violence that rests at the very center of our society. 
And it's a violence that says some people have property and some don't. It's a violence that says that somebody with $75,000 a year income quickly clacks their heels past somebody sitting there saying, I need something to eat. That's violent. That is violent. It's a violence that says that planners put condos, luxury condos within a mile of a housing project and then wonder how come people break into those things. It was close. <laughs> violence that causes people to remove public transportation from inner cities and then wonder how people don't have jobs. That's violence. That is use of force. It is violence to close banks. Now, why do I focus on bank mergers? Because as banks merge, they close branches. And there are inner cities right now where you can get in your car and drive from one end to the other and never find a bank. Never find a, an official money-changing place. So what do you have? Check cash in places who charge you 2% to cash a check. There was U.S. money orders went out of business about 10 years ago. 40% of their depositors were in California. Guess who their depositors were? Black and brown. And these people used money orders as a savings device. So they found one Latino man who had $12,000 in money orders. He was buying them $20 a week, $30 here. He planned to use them to help his grandson get an education. And there was no bank in his neighborhood. This is a form of violence. And then when someone says, well, but you, you want hyper-regulation. Excuse me. And you want it all. And you often have these com conversations. There is an organization in the Bay Area called the Association of General Contractors. All over the country, they have fought affirmative action and set aside decisions for small businesses, for minority-owned businesses. I met with some of these guys one time. I don't know why I did that. From time to time, I do these things as a character-building exercise. You know? It's like, if, can you talk to somebody like that for an hour without losing your temper? Um, you know, it, it, it builds character, I think. I guess. In any case, I tried this. We had some legislation on the books in San Francisco, and I thought, well, we would like, um, they, they said they didn't like the legislation. It required set asides, and then people said, well, Malvo was in it somehow. The man called me and said, Malvo, will you have lunch? I said, oh, sure. So we sat down and had water. That's all I really got to was the water course. <laughs> because then at that moment, I said to the guy, I said, you know, look, y'all got 98% of the contracts. And the African-American community has less than 1% of the construction contracts, less than 2 I said, what is it that you want? My man said, all of it. He did not blink an eye. He didn't even look ashamed. He didn't say all of it. He said, all of it. Looked me dead fully in my face, placed his baby blues right in my baby browns, and said, all of it. That's violence. You want it all, and what are the rest of us supposed to do? That is violence. That is economic violence. When you, Bank of America in the Bay Area, say you will lay off all your tellers and hire them at 19 hours, how do you get this magic number 19? Well, at 20, you have to pay benefits, okay? You lay them all off because you want to save money. Meanwhile, you're posting profits. That is economic violence. How is someone to live on a 19-hour paycheck? When you see our labor market bifurcating, and 80% of all Americans say they don't know where their next job will come from, that is violence. Now, let me be real clear with you. I am not advocating any kind of violence. I live in a neighborhood where the bullet could hit me, too. And for many middle class people, especially the black middle class, we've made a commitment to live in urban centers because the rest of our community lives there. So I'm not saying that violence is justifiable. I'm not saying I like it. But I'm saying let us put it in context and let us understand it. And let us not be fooled 
that these young men and women of all races are doing anything that other people are not doing. Now, we must infuse them if we believe in nonviolence with the notion that they can make a difference without picking up a handgun, that they can make a difference without being in a drive-by, that they, they can make a difference without joining a gang. But a gang, if you go to college, is a fraternity. And a gang, if you're a businessman, is a civic club. Think about it. So we only call them gangs when they're on the corner. But if you built a building and told people they had to have an MBA and be a WASP to join, charging $50,000, then this will be a restricted club, not a gang. So it's not the fact that these young people associate with each other that is problematic. What is problematic is that they are not associating with each other for positive good. Now, we have allowed the language to deteriorate in this country regarding what has happened in the African-American community. We have allowed folks to hijack the agenda so that you now have people talking about black-on-black -black crime as if it is the issue. It's part of the issue. But when the thug in Oregon hit Nancy Kerrigan in her knee, did they call it white-on-white -white crime? 86% of all white people are killed, who are murdered are murdered by other white people. 93% of all black people who are murdered are murdered by other black people. So these crime issues are issues that are societal issues and not race issues. And we must put them in context. Guns don't grow in the hood. They simply don't. There is no way you can fertilize concrete to make grows grunt in the hood. So that you come and harvest your guns freely. Where do they come from and why? And nor do drugs grow in the hood. So when we use this language, drug war, the question I often ask is, where do we get off telling young people about nonviolence? Drug war, the militarization of the drug crisis, that is a violent concept. We are spending three times as much on militarizing the drug, the stopping of drugs, as we're spending treating a disease. And for many people, it is a disease. And it's a disease that people are punished for in a racially different fashion. African-American man with $15 worth of crack spend, gets six months in jail. White man with $250 worth of powdered cocaine gets a rehab program. Part of this has to do with the way the laws are written, with mandatory sentencing, and with other issues. But I think it's the height of, crit uh, of cynicism to say, well, Dr. King would say, I didn't die for all that. What Dr. King did say is the time has come for all-out world war against poverty. Rich nations must use their vast resources of wealth to develop the underdeveloped, school the unschooled, feed the unfed. The well-off and secure have too often become indifferent and oblivious to the poverty and deprivation in their midst. That's what Dr. King said. He didn't say, I didn't die for that. He said, the poor have been shut out of our minds and driven from the mainstream of our society, and we have allowed them to become invisible. Ultimately, he said, a great nation is a compassionate nation. No individual or nation can be great if it does not have a concern for the least of these. The first step in a world war, war worldwide war rather, against poverty is passionate commitment. Have we seen that kind of commitment when we talk about poverty issues and economic issues? Not at all. We've heard people talk about family values and morals. And I don't have anything against morals and family values. I wouldn't be here without them. But I think that that's a, that's a shorthand and it's a disservicing and dissatisfying shorthand if you're not willing to talk about the economics. Dr. King said,
said that. You, he said you have to pair these things. And I know it's harder. It's much harder from a grassroots perspective for us all to talk about getting out the vote than it is to talk about tackling economics. But indeed, if we want to stop these spiraling crime rates, if we want young people to stop planning their funerals at ages 11 and 12, picking out little pink coffins for themselves and matching dresses and hair ribbons, then we have to explain to them and make it clear to them that there's a place and a space for them, a productive place and space in our society. And that is connected with work. And we haven't done that. And we have had hands off of the labor market because we don't want to be interventionists. We don't want people to think we're, quote, communist. The words industrial policy have just about been outlawed. We don't use them. We don't look at what's happening in 10 or 15 and 20 years and what industries will generate jobs, nor do we do anything to help industrial development along. Now President Clinton has talked about these empowerment zones and give people tax breaks if they locate businesses in inner city communities. And I wonder about these empowerment zones. Why doesn't he just create some loan funds? Not tax break, but loan funds for people who want to go into business. If we understand the way our economy is fissuring, then it becomes clear to us that the development of small and medium-sized business will be important to us and we ought to encourage it. The majority of Americans do not work for Fortune 500 companies anymore. Indeed, the majority of us work for companies that have fewer than 50 employees. So when you pass a Family and Medical Leave Act and call it revolutionary, but everybody who works for a company with less than 50 employees is excluded, you didn't do anything. You exclude half of all American workers. When you pass uh, a bill saying that people can personally import RU486, I love that one. How many of you lined up to go to, the, to France on the Concorde to take care of your birth control needs? <laughs> so the president lifts the personal importation on RU486, but does nothing about the collect the commercial importation of it or about moving this drug through. We've got all this symbolism going on. President Clinton loves to go to church. He loves to go to the black church. He has a good time. He sings, he sways, he cries. That's the cryingest president we've ever had. You know, now whatever you say about male sensitivity, and I don't, I mean, I, don't, I think men should be sensitive. But I'd rather my president not sob publicly on a regular basis. Let's do that at home. Get a psychiatrist. Do something about the economy and stop making me want to feel like, you know, I want to give you a handkerchief and say, they're there. You're supposed to say they're there to us, not the other way around. So we all sit there saying he's a good guy. He's a good guy. What we're not saying is we can make this man do what he said he was going to do. We can make not only this man, but every person we elect do what they're going to do so that we can transform our society into a place that's a reasonable and fair space that is fair, where people economically participate. We have something called economic justice where people who work 40 hours a week are paid and can live a survival way. We have 6 million Americans who make $4.35 an hour, the minimum wage. This man said nothing last year in the State of the Union address about raising the minimum wage, and he didn't. But if you go back to putting people first, he talked about raising the minimum wage. Why have we not held him accountable? How many people write letters? How many people say to their congressional representatives, excuse me? But what's going to happen to these folks? Because if we don't say anything, and this minimum wage worker then feels disaffected and at the periphery, we're responsible. And economic violence, the ultimate form of economic violence, is the way that minimum wage workers are forced to work. 
The Delta Pride Catfish Fat Farm is a perfect example in Mississippi where women struck for nine months to get 15 minutes a day to go to the bathroom. The chicken farm in Hamlet, North Carolina that no one has talked about was a tragedy because 25 people died, but the bigger tragedy is, guess what? In the next county, there are still people who are locking back doors. In the next county, there are still people who are working with water halfway up their calves and getting skin conditions for that, working with water running over their hands all the time and getting skin conditions from that and making $4.35 an hour. That is still happening. OSHA still, after all of that, is not investigating. Now what does all this have to do with Dr. King? It is part and parcel of where we stand this day when we talk about claiming the dream. The dream was a dream of economic justice. The dream was a dream of civil rights and economic justice, and we can't leave that economic justice piece out of it. Dr. King said, the movement must address itself to the question of restructuring the whole of American society. There are 40 million poor people here, that was in 1968, about the same number now. And one day we must ask the question why. And when you begin to ask the question, you are raising questions about the economic system, about the broader distribution of wealth. When, the, when you ask the question, you begin to question the capitalist economy. You begin to ask who owns the iron and who owns the iron ore. You begin to ask who owns and who pays. Dr. King, I think he was an economist. Of course, I, I will grant you this is some form of professional chauvinism on my part. Um, I believe he was an economist because he laid out an economic program in his writing. When he said when he accepted the Nobel Peace Prize, I have the audacity to believe that people everywhere can have three meals a day for their bodies, education and culture for their minds, peace and freedom for their spirits. He laid out an economic program. So how dare anybody sing and sway and dream this day if they can't too believe in those three meals? that education, that peace. How dare folks say, we believe in the dream and have a sale, or a furniture sale, or any other kind of sale, or advertise. And you look at these folks who advertise, and then you want to ask them, you believe in the dream? How many women are on your board of directors? How many people of color are in your senior management? You just dreamed you had $10,000 to take out a full-page ad. You didn't dream anything else. You're listening to Julianne Malveaux, Economic Justice, Dr. King's Legacy. This is Alternative Radio. You can order copies of this program by calling our toll-free number, 1-800-444-1977. Printed transcripts, PDFs, and MP3s of this program are free of charge. Just call us at 1-800-444-1977. Or you can order online on our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. We, for some reason, have been strangled by our own indifference, strangled by the notion that it's difficult to live and difficult to survive, and so we have no time for activism, strangled by the fact that there's so many issues that we have to address that we can't pick one. Why not? Strangled by the notion that we've got to get out of school and make a whole bunch of money. Or if we have a whole bunch of money, make a whole bunch more. There was a, 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 an article in Worth magazine. It was a real funny article. It said poor at $100,000 a year. And the writer interviewed about 20 families of people who felt that they were just so poor and so underprivileged because they're $100,000. 
just didn't go far enough. And um, I mean, I wanted to whip out my handkerchief for them, but I didn't want to cry. I wanted to use the handkerchief for something else. <laughs> we won't go into that because we're talking about nonviolence today. But in any case, he wants to say, get a grip, get a life, get some avion spray in your face. You need a wake-up call. This was 4.3% of the population whining that they don't have enough money. The average white family earns $35,000 a year for a family of four. The average black family, 23. And you're saying that $100,000 is not enough? Well, what, just what is it you need? I tell you what, give me your money. I'll manage it for you. I do a wonderful job. Put you on one of the 15-cent allowances, you know? <laughs> But we have to think about this notion of the unequal distribution of income and what it does to our collective lives and the ways that we've allowed that inequality and the impact and implications of that inequality to be hijacked by fools who are worried about all the money we spend on AFDC. All the money we spend. A woman with two children in the city and county of San Francisco gets $600. If you can find an apartment in the city of county of San Francisco for $600, I think you should get an award. That woman, if she wants to look for work, has to go down to the Department of Social Services to beg for tokens to get around. You don't get a fast pass anymore just by virtue of being on AFDC. If that woman chooses to enroll in an institution of higher education or even a training program, and it's a tuition program, that tuition is counted as income, and she jeopardizes her AFDC check. I think it's hard work being on welfare. Personally, more than that, AFDC expenses represent what? 1% of total GNP. If we are truly pressed about the ways we spend our money in this society, I would suggest that some other places to look besides the AFDC roles. And again, don't get me wrong. Nobody likes the welfare system as we know it today. Nobody is satisfied with it. We do need to change it, but we don't need to make these women victim. And we don't need to suggest that our underlying social problems have to do with AFDC. That if you somehow solve the AFDC crisis, life would be rosy in America again. If you somehow, and, and now you see people like Charles Murray saying, well, it's not only black folks, but it's white folks too. They have a white underclass. You're like, where you been, Mr. Murray? If AFDC was an African-American program, it would have been abolished a long time ago. <laughs> but you get these headlines and you say, oh, the growing white underclass, we've got to do something about it. Well, what we have to do is talk about how people can be included in our society, how people can have the possibility of participation. That's what we have to do. How people can be put to work. We did not close a single library during the Great Depression, not one. We began to close libraries in this country in 1986 as federal government and state governments began to pull funds away from city governments. Urban centers are getting 50% less real dollars from the federal government. So mayors are no longer political figures, they're like caretakers. Because they can't make political decisions, their hands are fiscally tied. And we have no urban policy, and a president who will not put urban policy into place. The far-reaching solutions for lifting the weight of centuries will necessarily involve systematic liquidation of ghetto life, loans and grants, said Dr. King, to provide equal opportunities for the unequally equipped, adult education, remedial clinics for damaged families and individual, integrated housing construction on a scale commensurate with the extent of slums rather than the extent of budgets. 
In other words, somehow we can find money to do whatever we want. Why do we not have the passionate commitment to do something for people who have been pushed to the periphery of our society? In D.C. Mayor Sharon Pratt Kelly, when she thought she was going to lose the Redskins, this is passionate commitment. My girl said, I will do anything. She pounded her hand on the podium at the press conference. I will do anything to keep the Redskins in my city. She almost beat the podium up. Anything, she said. And I looked at her and said, I've never seen a mayor say, I will do anything to feed the hungry. Anything, pound the podium, to make sure that children can go to school safely. Anything to make sure that people have jobs after school. Anything to make sure the transportation routes equally go to places in our city. We have passion for sports, but not passion for people. We have passion for symbols, but not passion for progress. We have passion for the feel-good quick fix, but not the passion for measurement. And I don't mean to pick on Sharon because she's not the only one. In the way that we are transferring wealth in our society, uh, Jack Kent Cook is not the only sports team owner who is demanding that an urban center that has already pressed for funds build them a new stadium. And this is happening all over our country. These folks are saying, build me a new stadium. And you want to look at them and say, what? You paying people $42 million to hit balls? Um, you know, and you're, and you're paying them, you know, $73 million to throw them through hoops. And um, I would be somewhat hypocritical if I did not admit that I have occasionally attended these uh, gatherings. <laughs> I mean, I've never seen a pair of Super Bowl tickets that I could turn down. But at the same time, I want to say that there's a priority issue here and that we don't get passionate about people like we do about other things. I believe in some notion of perspective. And that's what we're missing in our society now, perspective. And when we think about King, when we think about King, we have to think about perspective. Because what he did for us, our vision of social change before King was a relatively incremental vision. It was also a very bifurcated vision, where black folks fought for black rights and women fought for women's rights. And King sort of sold it all together for us. And he put the economy square in there, and he also put militarism square in there. And as King began to put it together piece by piece, what happened? He started scaring people. When he began to talk about Vietnam, he started scaring people. But we know there's a connection between a Vietnam and the economic situation our country was in in the early 70s. And we know there's a connection between the speed with which we can militarize to go into the Persian Gulf and the speed with which we can close down social programs. And we know that as we talk about the former Soviet Union and the kind of monies we will, go, we will put to assist them, and I think we should put some monies there. I think we, we know that many people say, well, we're going to do that so we can't do inner cities. We're going to do that so we can't do education, pulling us apart instead of pulling us together. There is no easy way, Dr. King said, to create a world where men and women can live together, where each has his own job, where all children receive as much education as their minds can absorb. But if such a world is created in our lifetime, it will be done in the United States by people of goodwill. It will be accomplished by people who have the courage to put an end to suffering by willingly suffering themselves rather than inflicting suffering on others. It will be done by rejecting the racism, materialism, and violence that has characterized Western civilization, and especially by working toward a world of brotherhood, cooperation, and peace. That's what Dr. King said. He talked about pulling this together. 
And I quote him because I want you to remember his words. So many people hasn't, have interpreted his words as very different from that what he said. He talked about the work that we must do to transform, and he talked about what it would cost. Suffer themselves rather than inflict suffering on others. What might that mean? Paying more taxes so we can get universal health care, not some piecemeal mess, and that may or may not include people, every, not include everyone all at the same time. Suffering in, instead of inflicting suffering on others, creating government jobs programs. You want people to work? Create the jobs. Suffering instead of inflicting suffering on others. Looking at this issue of entitlements with a race-neutral lens. Not doing this Bubba Bait number of saying it's us versus them. There are enough pressures in our society that say us versus them now. When we look at the ways our economy has been structured and the number of people who've been spit out, John Jacobs at the Urban League likes to say they used to just spit out black folks. Now everyone is being spit out. And the shocking fact is that while government moves sluggishly and in a patchwork fashion to achieve equal rights, it participates daily and directly in the denial of rights. It still does. This was true in the 60s, it's true today. When you look at government hiring, when we look at the sexual harassment that's taking place in government employment, when we look at the ways that governments are counting a number of things, and we look at the people that governments ignore. We are talking about a new world order, but we're stuck really with the same old stuff, with the same challenges that W.E.B. Du Bois put out there for us a very long time ago. We talk about a new world order and an international restructuring, yet we are woefully unable to restructure in this country because we don't pay attention to our entire citizenry. The arguments around NAFTA represented some of the ugliest arguments in our country. All our jobs are going to Mexico. Well, first of all, I've never seen jobs with names on them. You know, a job with a name engraved on it. All our jobs are going to Mexico. Mexico's our neighbor. Why was labor able to get so angry about NAFTA? Because the president had not made a compact with labor that said all Americans are entitled to jobs. So if those jobs go to Mexico, we'll have some more. Because the president had not put out a plan for an employment and training program. Because we had not talked about the moral issues that existed. This is morality. Not to talk about family values in a vacuum and everybody is honest, but to talk about social values and everybody has a chance to work. So what we put out there is the economics of resentment, the economics of neglect, and what we've gotten back is some bitter fruit in terms of the economic struggles and crises that we've seen. You really wanted that job. Do you remember that commercial? It was a job, it was a commercial that was used when Harvey Gantt ran against Jesse Helms. You really wanted that job, the commercial said, but they had to give it to a black person. And then you had these white hands tearing up the job application. What does that cause white people to think? Black people take it their jobs. And then you get an anger and a resentment. The murder of Vincent Chin. He wasn't even Japanese. They thought he was. So they just decided, well, he has a job. Excuse me? And killed the man. Simply killed him. And we don't want to talk about this economic murder. We are more concerned. It's easier to talk about hoodlums and drive-bys and other things. And in some ways, these drive-by shootings and the lack of peace in our communities is about an economic kind of violence. It, the stuff is connected, and we have to see 
those connections. And until we see those connections, until we pledge to break those connections, until we pledge to make sure that everyone can participate, we don't need to talk about a dream. We can remember Dr. King, we can remember his work, and I encourage you, you know, my favorite Dr. King writing is why we can't wait. Does that surprise you? Anybody who wants a date of overcome you know, in a daytimer also likes why we can't wait. But all of his work as you read it is brilliant in its passion and its power. And it reminds us of just what we're missing in the political and economic arena today. There is no passion. We have bureaucrats and technocrats and people who call themselves policy wonk. Now, is there any passion in the word wonk? You know, this is not a passionate word. It's a word that suggests that you're running numbers and running equations. Does it turn you on? No. But it's something to do. So you can produce a 1,300-page health plan and then say, but I'll compromise it all away. Well, why did you write it then? 1,300 pages, but everything here is fungible. See, I can't fungible with a word of my writing. Once I wrote it down, I want it like that. I mean, I might compromise if you're very nice to me. Why certain kinds of public policy do not make sense if we have a passion for what we want our society to look like, if we truly believe the King dream about full participation, then we truly do believe what we have to do to make it so. Dr. King was nonviolent, but he understood violence. And he struggled to make the concept of nonviolence real by looking at ways violence is motivated. He said, the only real revolutionary is a man who has nothing to lose. There are millions of poor people in this country who have very little or even nothing to lose. If they can be helped to take action together, they will do so with a freedom and a power that will be new and an unsettling force in our complacent national life. He wrote this in 1968, complacent national life. Dr. King talked about issues of power and violence and power are words that are connected. He said power without love is reckless and abusive. Love without power is sentimental and anemic. Think, because they think, again, people think about Dr. King as someone who loved, but he understood the limits of love. Love without power is sentimental and anemic. Power at its best is love implementing the demands of justice. Justice at its best is love correcting everything that stands against justice. There is nothing essentially wrong with power. The problem is that in America, power is unequally distributed. This has led Negro Americans in the past to seek their goals through love and moral suasion, and we shall overcome, devoid of power, and white Americans to seek their goals through power devoid of love and conscience. It is leading a few extremists to advocate for Negroes the same destructive and conscienceless power they have justly abhorred in whites. It is this collusion of immoral power with powerless immorality that constitutes the major crisis of our times. This was 1968, but think about that. The few extremists have now become the homies in the hood because we have not figured out a way to talk about joining power and love, because we have not talked about a way to have these young people think that one day they will sit at the tables in boardrooms because our United States Senate is still mostly white male. Now, before you say I'm bashing white men, I'm, I, I, actually, you do know that male bashing is my favorite sport. Um, I'm just kidding. Really. Um, but I'm not bashing white men so much as saying, let us put the power that white men have in context. When you look at labor force studies and, and average earnings, the average white man in 1993 earned about $590 a week. The average black man, 385 
Average black woman, 350. Average white woman, 380. Everybody's clustered there, three something, and the white man, on average, not every white man, on average, is making $200 a week more. That's deep. I mean, that's really deep. And when you begin to look at the numbers and see the inequality in these distributions, it's not white male bashing to point that out. It's not white male bashing to point out that there are two million Americans who earn more than $100,000 a year in our country. Two million people. How many of them would anybody hazard to guess a white male? 1.6 million. 200,000 a white female. And the black folks you could all have over my house. Um, <laughs> 30,000 black males and 15,000 black females. Actually, my house isn't that big. But, but the numbers are tiny in comparison. Wealth and power are concentrated. And although the dynamic of tokenism has generated some success, for some African Americans, it has not generated equality for the rest. 15%, of course, of all black Americans earn over, um, black American families that have over $50,000 a year. But these families, too, if you read Ellis Coase and the rage of a privileged class, these families, too, suffer rage because of racist minutia, the stuff that happens to them day after day. And then, even in this context, we fail, as we talk black and white, to deal with some of the pressing inequalities that have nothing to do with race, per se, but have to do with ethnicity, with the fact that Asians and Latinos, too, struggle for a place at the table, and that people cannot figure out how their space should be dealt with. King spoke to them too. In a sense, all of this is uninterrelated, King said. The agony of the poor impoverishes the rich. The betterment of the poor enriches the rich. We are inevitably our brother's keeper because we are our brother's brother. Whatever affects one affects all indirectly. What I think it's important to say as we talk about Dr. King and as I close here today, is that his economic vision was a vision where people could live without worrying about the water bill the light bill, the mortgage. It's a vision that talks about people being able to eat and there being no homelessness. It's a vision that suggests that yes, individuals have foibles, but that our country with all its wealth and resources would be able to deal with that. It's a vision that goes beyond saying, I have a dream that my little sons and daughters can walk with little white children because that was part of the dream. But it's not only walk, but also work. Not all walk hand in hand, but work hand in hand. We can't forget that. If there's anything we do as we talk about Dr. King and his dream, I think we understand that that dream has an economic connection. And if we understand that we, it has an economic connection, then we begin to transform our economy. How do individuals do that? How does one person transform an economy? In addition to the issues that we can deal with in terms of lobbying and legislation, I do think there are personal issues that we deal with as we talk about economic transformation. We can begin to boycott those who are not fair to us. We can begin to use our buying power to say, we will not spend money on companies who don't pay their workers because it's cyclical and connected. And we can do that. Remember that the Montgomery bus boycott was what? It was an economic boycott. Why did the bus company in Montgomery decide that black people did not have to sit at the back of the bus? They were about to go broke. I mean, they were not moved. Lightning did not strike them in the head, and all of a sudden they became non-racist. They were not moved by some moral sense. They didn't see who was that Paul on the road to Damascus. 
You know, they saw their profit sheet falling apart. They looked at the balance sheet and stared dead up in the face with their bottom line. And as we talk about implementing Dr. King's dream, we have to say we will not support those who do not support us. We will not buy from those who are not principal producers. That if you emit toxins, we don't want your product. That if you hire people at 425, we don't want your product. And understand that takes some personal sacrifice. Because the personal sacrifice then is that, why do you think chicken is the cheapest meat in America? Because chicken processing workers earn minimum wage. So if we decide that we want chicken processing workers to make more money, we decide what? That we have to pay more for that chicken. Maybe eat a little bit, little bit less of it. Something like that. There's not a problem with that, but the, the issue is to take control of our economy and to turn it into the same kind of grassroots movements that we've done with get out the vote, with pro-choice, with sitting at the back of the bus. That's a, those are difficult things to do and difficult things to think about, but they're things that I think we can do. I know that when I talk about changing the economy, people say, I think you may be a little maladjusted. You don't understand how things work in this country. You don't understand that individuals can't change the economy. Or you have some people who will say to you things like, well, yeah, but you're doing okay. We live in a social order that's maladjusted. And as Dr. King said, I call upon you to be maladjusted. He said, I never intend to adjust myself to segregation and discrimination. I never intend to adjust myself to mob rule. I never intend to adjust myself to the tragic effects of physical violence and to tragic militarism. I call upon you to be maladjusted in such things. I call upon you to be as maladjusted as Amos, who in the midst of the injustices of his day cried out in words that echo across generations, let judgment run down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. If we celebrate Dr. King, let us celebrate his maladjustment, his audacious, audacious belief that we could transform our society, his belief that people could have three meals a day. That's what we must celebrate. That is how, in transforming our economy, we keep the dream alive. Thank you. Thank you very much. That was Julianne Malveaux, Economic Justice, Dr. King's Legacy. This archival recording from the mid-1990s was recorded in Denver. Julianne Malveaux is an economist and political commentator. She has taught and lectured at major colleges and universities and is the author of Sex, Lies, and Stereotypes and Surviving and Thriving. This program is produced by Alternative Radio, an unembedded award-winning weekly series based in Boulder, Colorado. Since we began broadcasting in 1986, AR is independent. That's why we can do programs such as the one you just heard or others with Chuck Collins, David Suzuki, Bill McKibben, Michelle Alexander, and Angela Davis. Our special book offer is Angela Davis, Freedom is a Constant Struggle. To access our complete audio and book archive, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. Printed transcripts, PDFs, and MP3s of this program, Julianne Malveaux, Economic Justice, Dr. King's Legacy, are free of charge. 
Just call us at 1-800-444-1977. Or you can order online on our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. Special thanks to Ellen Mahoney and Will Donahoe. Series theme music is performed by the Kronos Quartet from Pieces of Africa. Joe Ritchie is our editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening. Just go to the website, alternativeradio.org, alternativeradio.org. We, too, are independent and are supported solely by listeners who make donations, uh, purchase transcripts, MP3s, or CDs of our programs. So we're very much uh, dependent on listeners out there. checking our audio waveforms they are looking thick are you ready for some thick waves zach do you mean thick waves delivered to us via cgsw 90.9 fm in calgary alberta on treaty 7 land i do i'm ready for some thick waves 